Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, Sean Galanka and I have the third and final installment of The Callback, our series on art and artists during the pandemic. In this installment, we look at festivals, unemployment, coming back to work, and more. After that, our fearless editor comes on the show to talk about his favorite thing besides Nevada politics, movies, specifically the Best Picture nominations for the Oscars this year. At the end of the show, healthcare reporter Megan Messerly returns to talk with Jacob about everything COVID-19, from the numbers to the vaccines to the state reopening. In part one of our series, The Callback, we explored how the pandemic affects the arts industry and how the community is recovering. In our second installment, we took a closer look at how some of Nevada's most prominent performing arts venues have navigated the past year. This week for our third and final installment, Sean Galanka and I spoke with a few people in the arts industry to learn more about how artists themselves have adapted to life in a pandemic and how they have continued to provide art to the community over the past year. Svetlina Stefanova is the founder of Bad Moon Booking, a promotions and booking agency, and is in a band called Same Sex Mary, which you just heard. Stefanova also helps organize the Life is Music Festival and is the executive director for the Damn Short Film Festival. To say that Stefanova is involved in the Las Vegas art scene is an understatement. The Damn Short Film Festival has brought film lovers to Boulder City each February over the nearly two decades of its existence. In the midst of the pandemic, Stefanova played a key role in transitioning the festival to go entirely online earlier this year. We just had our 17th annual festival, first time doing it virtually, which there was definitely concern about staying true to what our festival is. In her efforts to transition the festival, Stefanova said she struggled to replicate the in-person experiences of previous events. We worked really hard to take all the great aspects of our festival and try to translate it into the virtual world. But there's certain things like that live interaction, something we couldn't replicate for the filmmakers is them sitting in a theater, experiencing seeing their film on the big screen in a packed theater and getting that audience reaction. Despite the challenges, Stefanova said the move to a virtual festival allowed them to try new things. The online platform gave Stefanova an opportunity to reach a wider audience and to better understand that audience. Our reach was, you know, we normally had that 400 seat theater. Well, now we are, we had an unlimited screening capacity for each program and we, we opened it up to all of the United States for the films. We had protection for the anti-piracy software for the filmmakers. And then also our Q&As were live streamed worldwide. So that just expanded our reach. It's, it was amazing to be able to, like I could log on and see who's watching and what film they're watching, how much of the film they've watched, what they've skipped over. Like it was just really crazy to have all this new information. Really, you know, we have a lot more data that we can use through this, which is really exciting. Like 7,000 tickets were, were sold. Last year, Stefanova also helped organize the Life is Music Festival. 
The festival happens in late September at a bar near UNLV and advertises itself as a counterculture response to the Life is Beautiful Festival. With an online platform for the Life is Sh Festival in 2020, Stefanova says it was able to reach groups from all over the world. We created this 24 hours of content. We had like 108 bands from all over the world send in their performances. It was just this really cool, sort of like, I don't know what, what MTV should be. And it was just like this moment of where we felt together. And it just, that feeling that it just was really rewarding to experience that with everyone. As the program manager for special events at the UNR School of Arts, Shoshana Zeldner has faced similar obstacles in organizing arts events. The Reno Jazz Festival is a 9,000 person event. So it's really massive and it takes like a year to prepare for. So we had to make the decision in March to cancel the event before anything else was really getting canceled in Nevada. So that was actually really, really hard. With limited staff, Zeldner and her team made the decision to cancel the festival, which normally happens in late April, again in 2021. But she says the extra time has allowed her to reflect and plan more for the future of the event. I do think there's some really great benefit for us to be able to do that planning that we might not have otherwise been able to do. and. I mean, these conversations for us started before the Black Lives Matter protests and the murder of George Floyd, but it feels very timely and connected because a lot of the issues we're talking about are like the legacy of jazz and the history of jazz in the U.S. and how we can elevate voices of those who have been disenfranchised, minority voices, underrepresented voices, and those who like created jazz. And our faculty at the university in jazz are pretty much white men. So uh, we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> Zeldner also produces the school's performing arts series, which typically features an eclectic range of musicals, bands, singers, and dancers throughout each season. Zeldner said she had to change the logistics of the performances to adapt to the safety restrictions of the pandemic. We ended up working with the artists who we had contracted with, who would have been performing here in person this season, to produce one-of-a-kind sets for us that we are live streaming to our audiences, and then including a live Q&A. I think like we're all struggling to find silver linings, and I do think like a silver lining in this is the ability to have these more intimate conversations than we normally would have. This has really given that opportunity for like that barrier between the audience and the performer, I think, to come down a little bit and like to see each other as humans. Unlike Stefanova and Zeldner, Angelique Janowski wasn't running festivals or art programs before the pandemic. But like many other artists, the pandemic presented Janowski with an opportunity to reflect on what she had been doing and begin something new. Janowski spent more than four years as a dancer for the Cirque du Soleil show Zumanity on the Las Vegas Strip. But after months without performances and the show's official closure in November, she and a few other performers launched their own production company called the Visionary Pack Collective and a new cabaret show in Las Vegas called the Apero Show. I think for most of the artists, we all dreamed about like 
why not me why not creating our own show i didn't want to do that right now it was not my priority i was i, I was okay with Cirque du Soleil they gave me a lot of opportunity to express my, myself as an artist but things change with the situation it's like the coronavirus actually put us in front of a situation that we needed to act and just we needed to do something and just because no one else could give her, us this opportunity to do something, we just took it. Janowski performs her new show at the Baobab stage in Las Vegas' town square, which holds only a few hundred people at max capacity compared to the more than 1,200 people Janowski's old venue, the Zumanity Theater, can hold. Before launching the Apero show, the time away from Zumanity presented Janowski with a rare opportunity to create. We were just staying at home and waiting for something. And I actually create, created a new hoop act for the thinking about the future. Because, you know, when you, you're doing the 10, 12 shows a week, you don't have like real time to, to create because it, it's, it's a lot of energy to create, to think, to plus you have the show. Even with years of entertainment experience, Janowski said there were definite challenges in creating an original production. None of us produce a real show, so it's a learning process. We were like wondering, like, what can we do? Is it even possible for us to produce something? Because, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. It's, it's just not putting a show together. It's, it's behind the stage, behind the scene. It's, it's a lot. Ultimately, creating the show was about getting Janowski and other artists back on the stage at a time when larger Las Vegas strip venues were closed. We wanted to give the stage back to the artist. That was the main thing. That we wanted to give the artist the job, the opportunity to say like, okay, you have a job actually. You trained many, many years uh, to do what you're doing. It's so bad that you're just staying at, at home. It's been a year now that the show, they are still closed. We just wanted to give them their job back. So, so far we have six art artists on stage and our goal is to create more shows, um, to give more job to artists, uh, to, yeah, to create something bigger if we can. Over the past year, artists have also had to adapt to the shifting financial landscape of the pandemic and recession. Zeldner with UNR said she had some job security working at a university, and as a once full-time employee at Cirque du Soleil, Janowski could fall back on unemployment benefits. But as Stefanova described, the picture is far more complicated for others. A lot of the artists that I work with and represent and know end up not being able to make their art, whatever, whether it's music or, or whatever it is, their sole um, source of income. So they end up having to get a second job or more than just a second job or different gigs to make ends meet. And I ask myself, is this the new America? With a patchwork of different gig jobs and independent work, some artists may not be eligible for unemployment benefits. And even demonstrating a loss of income to qualify for certain relief programs, such as pandemic unemployment assistance, may pose a challenge for artists who have inconsistent income from week to week. All of those challenges have led Stefanova to work a number of different jobs in order to adapt to working and surviving in the arts industry. I always knew that I needed to find some kind of work that I could do remotely. That was 
really why I got into doing social media and, and marketing things and just work that I could do on the road so that I could be touring. So I think artists are very good at figuring all that out because as an independent artist, you end up wearing so many hats and you need to learn how to promote yourself. You need to learn how to you know, deal with the business side of things. One of Stefanova's many hats is being the keyboardist in her band, Same Sex Mary. During the pandemic, the band has mostly been unable to practice together, leaving the group to collaborate online. We've been just tossing around a bunch of ideas and have some songs already written and have the structure for this concept album that we've been working on. So when we had the time, we were doing like weekly Zoom sessions with the band and just kind of still staying creative, really still felt like band practice, but we're just talking out ideas for this concept album on Zoom. But the group also briefly got together to record a four-track EP record that Stefanova says was a reflection of what was going on during the pandemic. Luckily, the band was okay with just like learning this song in like a week and then recording it and that is what it is. And that was really a beautiful experience to do that. They got you all locked up and won't let you out. And it's gonna make you scream and shout. You're all pent up with nowhere to go. And so you're gonna let the whole world know. You're gonna tell them that things aren't so bad. Except, of course, for mom and dad. Cause businesses need money too. So what else is the world to do? Whether it was a band being forced to meet over Zoom, or a jazz festival being canceled, or an in-person event transitioning to online, the pandemic presented major changes and challenges for artists throughout Nevada. But ultimately, they found ways to adapt, which is a creative endeavor in itself. Some of the music in today's segment was from Stefanova's band, Same Sex Mary. If you want to hear more from their band, you can find them on bandcamp.com or on Instagram. If you want to hear the first two parts of the series, you can find those on our last two episodes of our podcast. We will also have a written version on our site as well. This piece was produced by Sean Galanka and myself, Joey Lovato, and was edited by me with additional help from Michelle Rendells. But spoiled milk ain't all that sweet. Now fake is real and real is fake. Pushed until our minds break. All right, and so I am here with Editor-in-Chief John Ralston. John, how's it going? Hey, Joey. And we are here to talk about the Oscars. We haven't talked about movies on the podcast in quite some time. The Oscars are coming up in two weeks on the 25th of April. John, you have seen all the Oscar nominations. I have seen most of the Oscar nominations. So what do you, did you have a favorite of the of the Best Picture nominees? Yeah, I think if I had to choose one, Joey, I think I would say Nomadland was the Best Picture of the Year. I like Minari a lot, which I know you haven't seen, but knowing you, Joey, as I do now, uh, I think you were you were going to like Minari a lot. It's pretty close between those two for me. I don't think it was like an overwhelmingly great year for movies, but I, I, of all of those, I like. I think I like Nomadland as a cinematic achievement, uh, the best. The direction 
is phenomenal. The use of real people and Frances McDormand, if she doesn't win an Oscar, there's something wrong. I loved Nomadland. I loved it specifically because I've traveled rural Nevada actually quite extensively. And a lot of those places, you know, I've been to Empire. It's pretty close to Gerlach. You know, it's really cool to kind of see rural Nevada represented. And I would say it's one of the most unpretentious movies I've ever seen. Exactly. It's a great word for it. And, and and her performance in so many ways, I think, is so brave. She just acted like a such a real person. She blended in with all the real life characters. I would also say that, that was probably my favorite of the nominees, but I'm going to I'm just going to kind of keep it moving along here because we have a lot of nominees to get through. But the father, this is one that I haven't seen. Yeah, the father I thought was really good. And maybe the reviewer I, I respect the most in the country now, Sonny Bunch, thinks that's the best movie of the year. I thought that Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman were both tremendous. They're both great actors and they're really up to this. And it's amazing that, that Anthony Hopkins was able to pull off playing a guy essentially afflicted with Alzheimer's at his age too, for him to give that kind of performance. But I just think he's slightly and Olivia Coleman are slightly better than the picture. I, I didn't think it was a great movie. I thought it was very good. And I think they're both great. The next one is Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, was directed by Shaka King. I saw this. I liked it, but I didn't love it. Yeah, I, I liked it a, a quite a bit. I, I thought that 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 it, it was imbalanced in a way in, in that the, the guy who's the FBI undercover guy, his motivations at various times to me are very unclear and difficult to justify, I, I thought. But but I thought that Daniel Kaluuya, the, 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 the lead actor uh, who had his breakout performance in Get Out, I, I thought he was absolutely phenomenal in the movie. Yeah, no, I thought both of the main actors were, were, were really good. Yeah, I think it was quite good. And I think it's deserving of an Oscar nomination. Yeah. All right. So the next movie is Mank. And this is by, directed by uh... David Fincher. Yes. What did you think of Mank? I, I had really high hopes for Mank, and it did not meet those those high hopes. I love Gary Oldman, and, and I think he's really good in this. He's really good in, in everything. But you talk about a movie that dragged, Joey. I just, uh, listen, I, I'm not averse to, to what are known as like talky pictures where there's a lot of dialogue and everything, but I just don't think uh, it, it worked. Yeah, I thought this was a bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a huge David Fincher fan, by the way. And I just I just don't I don't think this is a great movie. No, I, I felt like the most Oscar Beatty movie of all time to me. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. The Hollywood loves to do the navel gazing and, yes. and all the rest of it. This is a movie about Hollywood. So, yes, I, I agree with that 100 percent. You know, I wonder, I just real quickly, Joyce, since we're talking about this, this is a movie that I saw at home. There is a different experience to watching something on your couch because of the pandemic than being in the theater. And I wonder, I'm not sure this is a good example of it, but I wonder about uh, this movie and others, if you actually saw it in a theater, if the experience would have been different. Yeah, I, I, I do agree that the theater experience does does change things a bit. I saw um, the Godzilla versus Kong at the drive-in in Reno, actually. And uh, that was a really fun experience. Great I mean, time at that movie. It's the first movie I've been to in a theater since September. Uh, I took my fiance and her daughter to see Godzilla versus Kong. And I, I just thought it was wonderful. It was great to be back in the theater. I think that had something to do with it. But I, I just thought it was so much fun. I mean, you know what you're getting and you got it. It was that movie was so much fun. It was just like it's a great movie to just eat popcorn to and watch on a big screen. Uh, the story exactly. was completely nonsensical, but that doesn't yes, matter. of course. So next we have Minari. This is another one I haven't seen. 
Yeah, Minari is really, really well done. It's a, it's a real slice of life and an unexpected slice of life about this Korean American family that goes and settles in Arkansas. And, you know, everything that you expect to happen doesn't happen. You expect the rednecks to be really awful to them. And it's just the opposite. And, you know, they I thought they would do the caricature of the rednecks in Arkansas. And you saw the tension, bill, but it's really just a really captivating, heartfelt uh, story. And I think two of the actors in there got nominated for Oscars. I think the husband and the grandmother, I believe. And the grandmother in this movie is just fantastic. My gut tells me you're going to really like this movie. Yeah, I, I think I will too. The next one is Promising Young Woman, another one that I missed. Yeah, that Carrie Mulligan is fantastic uh, in this movie. I'm not sure it holds up. She's better than the movie. It's way too pat, I think, at the end, what what happens. And I just, as much as I like her and like the performance and even like some of the themes that are explored in it, I, I just, I'm not so sure it's a great movie, Joey. I really like Bo Burnham, who's in that movie. He's one of my favorite comedians of all time. So I'm curious to, to, to watch that one. The next one is Sound of Metal. Uh, I like Sound of Metal quite quite a bit. It's pretty controversial. I have I have a sister who is deaf, and 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 she and I was really curious to see what she would th- think of it, and she found it to be very controversial. And there were a lot of things in there. She told me uh, she did not find to be believable, and she has cochlear implants, and he gets cochlear implants, and she said it's nothing like what he experienced. But she also found things she liked about it. I I. I thought that the movie itself was not a great movie, but I thought he was great. I liked it. I liked it a lot. I, I, th- I thought it was touching, very touching. As, as we were talking at the beginning, or as I said, I don't think it was such a great year for movies. And so I think a lot of good rather than great movies got nominated for Oscars. Yeah. Oh, and another one, that, and we're going to get to the last one here, which is Trial of the Chicago 7, which I thought, again, is a surprising Oscar nomination. I really enjoyed it a lot. I'm a huge Aaron Sorkin fan, though, and this was Aaron Sorkin at his most Sorkin-y. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I, I have very mixed feelings about uh, Aaron, Aaron Sorkin, and I've kind of never forgiven him for the newsroom, which was just an awful series about journalism, I thought. But but I, I, I and I was never a big West Wing person, not because I didn't like it. Just I just didn't watch it a lot for whatever uh, reason. But A Few Good Men is a great movie with a great script. Uh, I, I enjoyed this movie immensely, even though it is wildly historically inaccurate from what I understand. But I thought the ensemble performance in this uh, in this movie were really something to behold. And I thought Sasha Baron, Baron Cohen was really phenomenal in, in, in the movie, Joey. Yeah, I I, I really enjoyed it. it I'm, I was surprised that they made a courtroom drama so engaging and fun. Also was not around when that happened is actually I didn't know much about it I, I think I maybe had offhandedly heard about it in history class and that was really it it was one of those things with Aaron Sorkin that I sometimes feel afterwards which is I liked it more than I think I should have liked it like you say to yourself no one would really talk like that but but I, I listen I, enjoy, I enjoyed the movie quite a bit I also think that I got a lot out of watching watching Trial of the Chicago 7 after watching Judas and the Black Messiah because yep. they have overlapping stories, actually, which is really interesting. Exactly right. Yep. Yep. The, oh. the, I think Judas and the Black Messiah is a slightly better movie, though. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. Do you want to wrap up by t- just talking about how wrong you are about Tenet? Or do you want to talk about- <laughs> I will tell you the Tenet is a hilariously silly movie. It has some really fun action scenes and a completely big mess of a story 
<laughs> yeah, listen, uh, you have to really, I mean, I, I think I have to see it again, how weird and mind bending it was. And I really, I really enjoyed, but I mean, you're right in the sense that it was a mess, uh, especially compared to most other Nolan movies that even when they're going out on a limb, at least afterwards, you can kind of have a conversation about what happened. I wouldn't even know how to have a conversation about what happened in, in this. I thought that that movie was absolutely absurd. When your main character's name is the protagonist, it's hard yeah. not to roll your eyes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I th- it was a little bit too much, even for Nolan. And I love Christopher Nolan. I think he's probably the the best, you know, big picture director working. But listen, it's not my favorite Nolan movie, but I quite enjoyed it. Well, John, thank you so much. I'm glad we got to talk about movies on the podcast again. Hopefully we'll get to do it again soon. I am happy about that, Joey. Thanks. And now we want to take a minute to dive a little deeper into the context of the coronavirus in Nevada. As always, or I guess for the first time in a couple of weeks, we have a Nevada independent healthcare reporter, Megan Messerly, to break it all down. Megan, thanks for being here. Yeah, happy to join you. All right, Megan. So it has been a little bit, but I don't want to dig too deep into the numbers, but I did want to ask about case trends. The state's been at or around a plateau for a couple of weeks in terms of the numbers, but now we've seen a a bit of a defined uptick in a couple of those key metrics. So I wanted to ask, I think the question on a lot of people's minds is, is that just a a quirk of the data as it has been sometimes, or is that a, a real defined uptick? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, you know, as, as folks who've been following the data know, you know, we obviously saw this huge spike in, in the fall and early winter. And then we saw these weeks over weeks of, of decreases in, in case trends and hospitalizations. And then, as you said, we were at this plateau for a while, which which folks were feeling pretty good about. State officials, on the other hand, had sort of been warning that we probably would start to see an uptick at some point. And it seems like we are finally seeing that uptick. It's not, you know, sort of the sharp increases that we've seen with the previous surges. So that's good news so far. Also complicating the data currently, just where we're at right now, is the fact that Clark County reported uh, two days that included significant backlog tests, tests that are weeks old. And so that sort of right now is is pulling the seven-day average up a little bit. On the other hand, if you take that out, the numbers still are a little elevated over what we were seeing a couple of weeks ago. And so I think the question is, where does it go from here, right? We were expecting to see some increases, especially as things started opening up. Do those trends continue? Does it uh, start to grow faster as we've seen uh, with previous trends? So that, that's really what, what we'll be keeping an eye on moving forward. It's worth noting as well, we've seen sort of a similar trend with hospitalizations. They uh, reached the sort of record low number. It was actually the, the lowest number of COVID-19 hospitalizations that had ever been reported since these numbers started being reported at the beginning of the pandemic, which was obviously good news. Those numbers are a little bit up. It's been hard to tell looking at the data. They, they do fluctuate a lot day to day. Uh, so we have seen them go back down below 300 hospitalizations a day and then back up again. So still, again, sort of keeping on our eyes on where those where those numbers are going. And then the last thing to note is the test positivity rate, which is something we always keep an eye on, right? The percentage of people whose tests are coming back positive. Uh, that number has also started to increase in recent days. So so again, this is something state officials anticipated to see, uh, especially with the rising spread of, of variants as that sort of races against the vaccination effort and as things start to open up. So not a surprise, but obviously something that, that we still want to keep our, our eyes on, especially as we're seeing increases in, in other states and specifically, you know, Michigan, where there's a significant surge happening. State officials obviously don't want Nevada to end up in that situation. Mm. So as we keep our eyes on this, this 
little rise in, in cases in those important metrics here. I also want to ask about a big announcement we got this week, and that's uh, the, the governor announced that we're going to be back to 100% capacity statewide on June 1st. But as I understand, there's a, a little bit of context to that announcement. How did we get to this point? Yeah, so if everyone remembers sort of back in uh, back in February, the governor had announced the 75-day transition reopening plan, where things would gradually loosen and loosen after our statewide pause, which happened uh, during the that sort of fall winter surge, you know, things went to 35% capacity, 50% capacity. And then what's happening now is the state is planning to turn over the reins for setting these COVID-19 health and safety measures over to the counties. And that happens on May 1st. Now counties have been working on their transition plans for what what it's going to look like once they take over control from the state. The important context to the governor's announcement is that many counties, especially in rural Nevada, had already expressed their intent to open 100% on May 1st. So the governor sort of uh, challenged counties to uh, be able to meet this goal of a June 1, 100% reopening. But but many counties, in fact, are, are going to get there on their own and, and, and plan to do so as soon as a couple of weeks from now. So that's sort of the, the important context. Now, the one thing that the governor did do, which, which does matter, is that in order to open uh, 100%, there's this question of, how, how do you do that if you still have six foot social distancing in place? And so the governor removed that strict sort of requirement on a statewide level and some other things that the state had spelled out at the statewide level on social distancing and is now leaving those decisions up to the county. So that was part of his announcement this week. Counties, though, are kind of in this interesting spot where the state is telling them, OK, you don't have to follow these strict uh, these strict rules, the strict you know social distancing requirements that we're spelling out. On the other hand, we still want you to follow the CDC's recommendations on social distancing. The CDC is still recommending, you know, six feet distancing. So you can imagine a situation in which a county says, you know, I want to open 100%. You know, can this business be open 100% with six foot distancing? And you might find this tension between a business being open 100% and being able to still follow that six, six foot distancing requirement. So we may see some counties that are on the more conservative side. You know, they, they might be as fully open as they can be. It may not be exactly 100%, but as much as they can be with six foot social distancing. And then we've seen some, uh, again, especially rural counties that have been uh, really eager to open and really frustrated over the directives who, who, who may not necessarily want to follow that CDC six foot guideline and recommendation. And they say, you know, everything goes 100%. You know, it's a free for all. In fact, some counties have said, uh, we don't want to follow the mask order, which will remain in effect after May 1st. There will still be a statewide mask mandate, which which some rural counties have, have pushed back on. So essentially, you know, what folks need to know is that they should look to their county to figure out what the rules are going to be starting May 1st and then keep their eyes on the county for any updates uh, to those rules. But interestingly, for instance, in Clark County, Commissioner Commission Chair Marilyn Kirkpatrick said this week, that, you know, she's hopeful that, that the county can get to this June, the first goal that the governor has set. She said, you know, if people uh, keep getting vaccinated, if people get tested, you know, if they're, they're experiencing symptoms, that's the path to getting to 100% reopening in Clark County by June 1st. Okay, so finally, I did want to ask about vaccinations, because we've seen the states ramp up pretty rapidly the eligibility requirements for vaccines. And now, uh, as of the last 10 days or so here, every Nevadan over the age of 16 has been able to get a vaccine. Now, as we've done that uh, this week, I'm sure the thing at the top of everybody's mind when it comes to these vaccines is the federal recommendation that states pause the distribution of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine over the appearance of rare blood clots in just a handful of people who received it. Now, what I want to ask, Megan, is how is this affecting Nevada? Is, is, this, a, is this a big deal for the state's a distribution of the vaccine here? 
Yeah, it's it's a really good question. And you know, before we dive into it again, we should note that this is this is just a pause so that you know the, the federal government can take a time to review these cases, figure out exactly, you know, what's going on. One of the things worth noting is is the drug that's typically used to treat blood clots. It doesn't seem to be super effective in, in treating these blood clots that have arisen after the administration of, of the J and J vaccine. So right now there's just a lot going into figuring out, okay, why why is this happening? Uh, what's the best course of treatment if this does happen? Um, and that's sort of where, where things are at at a federal level. So, you know, I know some folks have said that there's a concern that this is going to contribute to vaccine hesitancy. Other folks have said this is proof the process works, right? There was a problem identified. We're taking this time to pause and step back and figure out what's what's going on. So sort of the long-term impact, you know, remains to be seen. But like you said, short-term impact, the use of the vaccine is paused. State officials have said, you know, on sort of a, a big scale, wide scale, the, the pause isn't going to significantly impact vaccine operations in the state. Part of that is doses were actually already decreasing. There weren't that many coming into the state anyway. So so in that sense, there were already questions about, is the state going to be okay with fewer J&J doses coming in now that the use is paused? Um, that question is sort of moot. And so the state has increasing numbers of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine coming into the state. So it plans to just use those doses in the meantime. Where it has had an impact is with the operation of two mobile vaccination units that are currently going through Northern Nevada and Southern Nevada right now to vaccinate folks in, in rural counties and on tribal reservations. They Those units were planning to use the J&J vaccine uh, for a couple reasons. One, the storage of that va- vaccine is much simpler than, than it is for Pfizer or Moderna that have very specific cold storage requirements. Uh, so just a lot easier in that regard. And then obviously it's a one shot. So it makes it easy. You can drive through these rural towns, give people their shots. They're good to go. So from a lo- logistics perspective, it's much easier to administer J&J. On the other hand, state officials now are pivoting. They don't want to stop that mobile vaccine unit effort. So those uh, units will now be distributing the Pfizer vaccine. And just the difficulty here is that that means those units have to go back through in in three weeks, right, and do those second doses for everyone. So they're urging people, you know, if you make an appointment, if you come see those mobile vaccination units, you need to be prepared to come back exactly three weeks because that unit is only going to be in town on that specific day, three weeks from from that day. So that's the the big thing. Well, certainly a lot to keep an eye on and uh, glad we could have this update on COVID in Nevada, Megan. Thanks so much. Yep, thanks for having me. If you want to know more about the coronavirus in Nevada, you can head to our website, thenevadaindependent.com. There you can find some semi-regular updates from Megan in her Coronavirus Contextualized series, as well as a still regularly updated dashboard with all the latest COVID-19 data. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Sean Galanka, Svetlina Stefanova, Shoshana Zeldner, Angelique Janowski, John Ralston, and Megan Messerly for being on the show this week. Leave us a review wherever you listen. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, we're on every platform. Also, share the show with a friend or on social media. It helps the show grow so we can continue to bring you fantastic interviews and updates every week. Email us with any questions, comments, concerns, banana nut muffin recipes, book recommendations, or whatever else is on your mind. You can reach me at joey at thenvindy.com and Jacob is at jacob at thenvindy.com. And we will need those banana nut muffin recipes. Reno band People With Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. And we had more music this week from Svetlina's band Same Sex Mary. If you want to hear more music from either of them, you can find them both on Bandcamp. There was additional music in today's episode from Lance Conrad and original music by our own Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.
And to any of our eagle-eared listeners who may have heard a cat meowing about three-quarters of the way through that segment, my apologies for that. That is uh, my cat, and I promise that's just the way she sounds all the time. She knows no other way to meow. 